This morning we come to the fourth and final in our series of sermons on the uniqueness of Christianity. Next week we pass into the beginning of Advent and we'll change the topic a bit, but I hope these weeks will have been helpful to you in understanding again the beauty of our Savior. Everything about him is wonderful. We've sought to point out only four things that he taught or did which um, make him especially unique and which we hope will give you something to say in conversation with unbelievers, people struggling to understand what Christianity is all about. They've heard about the virgin birth and many don't believe it. They've heard of the resurrection and they don't accept it. It's too hard to grasp. There's something that holds them back. So not to make it easier, but to change the subject, perhaps in this day and age, to some of the ethical teachings of Christ, perhaps they will find in them something that is attractive to their faith. We have seen, as I show in the outline there, uh, that uh, there are at least four things about which Jesus is unique and which we have, to which we have turned in this past month. The first of them is the new birth and the new life that is ours through Jesus Christ. And the th- last three have to do with the ethical teachings of our Lord, which are truly unique in the history of the world. We have seen in doing so that they all are contained in the parable of the prodigal son. Excuse me, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's make sure you're listening. <laughs> the parable of the Good Samaritan, which... Uh, these last several weeks, Scott Hoganson has read for us so memorably. He's not here today having some out-of-town company. But I will read now the parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and following. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? asked Jesus. The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Let us pray. Indeed, O Lord, may we be enabled by your spirit to go and do likewise. And may you fortify us again this morning with your word and your spirit's power that we may care about what you care about and do as you have commanded and honor you this Thanksgiving week, not only with our lips, but also with our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is indeed a memorable story. It's probably, in my experience, the first story I remember as a little boy going to church. It made the deepest impression on me. I thought it was cool that he walked on the water. I thought it was great that he fed the 5,000. I thought it was amazing that he stilled the storm. But outside of the incarnation and the resurrection, as a, thinking back at doing this sermon series... I believe this is really the first gospel story, the first gospel teaching that made an impression on my young mind going to church with my parents as a little boy. I didn't know what a Samaritan was, and I didn't understand the differences between the Jews and the Samaritans, although the ministers always labored to tell me something about those differences. I just thought it was amazing how he helped this guy. And I knew even in four or five years old that that sort of thing was extraordinary, that I wouldn't have done that probably. While I felt some animosity toward the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side, already I understood, I could see, I could, I could get their indifference or their desire to hurry on to their own agenda. But I was stopped in my little four- and five-year-old mind with the astonishing mercy of the Samaritan. He went to him. And indeed, this is what we are to feel from the story. That he went to make a neighbor of someone who was his enemy. That he went to go to one who was nearly dead to help him. And that he would do it himself. Personally, He wouldn't preach a sermon on it like I'm doing. He wouldn't talk about it, what he ought to do in class, like we'll do in the sermon discussion class in a few moments. He did it. And that is, to this day, astonishing to me. Just yesterday, I came face to face with a panhandler, and I said no. I didn't want to do it. I mean, I was thinking about this sermon. It was doing cartwheels in my mind. And still, I refrained from helping. So I see God has a long way to go with me since my four- or five-year-old mind down these many years later. There's still some work to do. Notice the verse, Romans 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. Recently, when the men gathered, we heard Santo Garofalo 
and David Cohen talk about the bias and prejudice that God has on behalf of the poor. And by that, of course, we mean not just the economically poor, although that comes often first to our minds. But there are the spiritually poor, the emotionally poor, the mentally poor. There are a number of ways to be poor. Especially the lost are those who are without the grace of God and are impoverished by it. But God has a bias, an interest in the poor. And we would call this perhaps even a sinful bias, except the Bible teaches us that he's perfectly just. He isn't prejudicial. He isn't biased. So the concern that he shows for those who are weak, as mentioned here in Romans 15 and in this parable, is a holistic, healthy bias. His mind is not weighted in the wrong direction simply because he has a soft heart. We go to a ball game, and even last night I was watching one, and I said, that looks like a call for the home team. They wouldn't have called it that way if it was in the other stadium. But God calls it this way because it's right, deeply, cosmically, fundamentally right to be concerned about the weak and those who are in need. There's something in the whole universe that's woven through it in this message. The care of the poor is very important. As I say in the outline, the Bible often teaches that we should take care of the poor, the orphans, the immigrants, the widows. The talented and the stronger have an obligation to help the weaker. Listen to Proverbs 19. The poor are shunned by their relatives. How much more do their friends avoid them? Though the poor pursue them, though the poor pursue them with pleading, they are nowhere to be found. Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Isaiah 1.17, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, and plead the case of the widow. These are not just the materially poor, but also the handicapped, the lost, the victims of injustice, and the social outcasts. Job says in chapter 31, If I have kept the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten up my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it, but from from my youth he grew up with me as with a father, and from infancy I guided her, I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy had no covering. Shame on me. In virtually all of the ancient cultures of the world, the power of the gods was channeled through and identified with the elites of society, the kings, the priests, the military captains, not the outcasts. But in Israel's rival vision, in God's kingdom, it is not the high-ranking males, but the orphan, the widow, and the stranger with whom God takes his stand. His power is exercised in history for their empowerment. So from ancient times, the God of the Bible stood out from the gods of all the other religions as a God on the side of the powerless and of justice for the poor. It's simply incontrovertibly true. It's woven all through the Bible. And as soon as next week, we will remember again how poor Joseph and Mary were, how insignificant was the town of Bethlehem, how modest their circumstances, how powerless their situation As Mary cries out, the Lord has remembered his servant. 
Indeed, he has. But not because she was great and high and mighty and wealthy and powerful and influential, even like the Queen of Sheba, but because he condescended to exercise that perfect justice which says, I will balance the scales and make them favor the poor. I am concerned about the lost, and I want them to be reached. So I will send my only son, and I will give him up so that he might be a gift for my people. Nevertheless, over the centuries, several philosophies and religious groups have argued for the importance of helping the poor, and several arguments have been proposed. One is the moral argument that it's right to help the poor. Other religions say this. It's not Christianity only that says that we should care for the poor as the Samaritan did. But in a world with diminishing interest in objective morality, other motivations are needed and suggested. Moral arguments are weak these days because morality in general is not something that people are drawn to even around the world. One is the rational, another one is the rational or practical one, that the world would be a better place if the poor are helped. Another is an appeal to the human element, to tell their story, and people will be moved to help them. But this does not seem to help in cases where people will not love their enemies or will not help chronic cases, no matter how pitiful their circumstances. The purpose of the man's question to Jesus is to justify himself, the Bible says. He wants to show that he's done pretty well at this. And Jesus says, you haven't done well at all unless you do this. Unless you express yourself as I have expressed myself for my enemies, out of my way, at great cost, for that which was dead or nearly so. What are our motivations for helping the poor, the lost, the lame, the hurting. First of all, a joyful awe before the goodness of God's creation. As we saw last week, we value them because they bear his image. They may have made a complete mess of things. Their lives may be in shambles, but they still bear his mark. They may be in prison. They may be condemned, but they still bear his mark. And so we care for them. We look after them. The second reason, of course, is the experience of God's grace and redemption, as we'll see. Now, God does not call everyone to bring sacrifices of the same kind and value. For that would have automatically made it easier for the rich to please God. If it was a matter of serving God and just giving $50, then the, or $500, then the rich could do so easily. They have it. They can do it. But it's much more than that. Instead, God directs that each person should bring what they can, and if their heart is right, that will give them access to his grace. Grace is the key to it all. It is not our lavish good deeds that procure salvation, but God's lavish love and mercy. That is why the poor are as acceptable before God as the rich. It is the generosity of God, the freeness of his salvation, that lays the foundation, even in the seemingly mundane rules and regulations of the tabernacle rituals. We see that God cares about the poor, that his laws have made provision for the disadvantaged, and God's concern for the welfare of the poor permeated every part of Israel's life. 
it should also permeate ours. So the predicate is laid down. We are to care for those who are hurting. Maybe it's their fault. Maybe there's a lot of extenuating circumstances. It doesn't matter, as we'll see in a moment. But how do we do this? We do it like the Good Samaritan did it. This is the paradigm. He saw him and he responded, it says. The others saw him and passed by. And we saw when we looked at that a few weeks ago that it could be because they were trying to preserve their ceremonially clean position because they thought he was dead. At any rate, he was very seriously injured. He had lost not only his money and any kind of things he had with him or any kind of animal to carry him or his burden on his journey. He he also lost his clothing and a good bit of his health. He was beaten, not just pushed in the ditch and robbed or struck a time or two. The scriptures say he was half dead. He was seriously injured. And the question of his survival couldn't be determined. Would he live or wouldn't he? The Samaritan saw him and responded. Unlike the other two, perhaps due to a sense of pity, because it says he took pity on him, he took care of him. This is not the way things ought to be, he thought. I'm a Samaritan, he's a Jew, we don't like each other, but so what? I'm going to do it anyway. He saw him and he responded. He personally acted. The Bible says that he gave up his animal, that he poured on oil and wine. But I think the most astonishing thing about it all is that he stopped what he was doing. This man was going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, or perhaps coming back up the other way. And he had a plan. He had, he had business to conduct, or a relative to see, or a land piece of land to purchase. He was on some kind of journey for a reason. And he stopped what he was doing. Now this to me is the most expensive part of this. He surrendered his agenda for this other person. Yes, he gave up his animal. Yes, he left some coins. But let's not forget that he had something else in mind for that day. He was headed somewhere. And for me, at least, this is the most difficult part. I'm on my way to do something, and I encounter a need. I get a phone call. I, I, I meet someone who needs my time. And there's this big ocean that washes inside of me that says, I need to stop what I was planning to do and listen. I need to get off of my agenda and respond. I need to look at what their needs are and give up what I was planning to do. And to me, that is the hardest part to get started. Whatever else the, the, Jew, the Levites might have thought and the priest, they, were, they pursued their, they went after their agenda. They kept their appointments. They made the journey on time. But the Samaritan didn't hit his appointment, surely. He didn't make Jericho by sundown, probably. 
He stopped. He surrendered his agenda. And he personally acted. This was his own time, his own effort, his own oil, his own wine, his own donkey, his own money. All of it was from him, no one else. And he took responsibility for the ongoing care. This is the thing that's really especially unique about Christianity is the hospital, the prison, the institution for those who are mentally ill. These things arose out of a concern, a Samaritan concern for others. An ongoing concern, not just a few coins in a pot, not just a kindness on a passing journey, but a long-term commitment. This man is going to now be accountable for his enemy. Not just help him a little bit on the side of the road, but go out of his way and be accountable for him. This is what Jesus did. He didn't just send us a a few words of inspiration. He didn't just give us some kind lessons to live by. He went out of his way at great cost so that we might have redemption. And he paid for that cost and he stayed with us. He came back to the disciples after the resurrection. He walked with them by the seashore. He sent his spirit. And he continues to abide with his church. He has an ongoing concern for we who are poor. This is what the Samaritan showed. Accountability. He's mine, in a sense he was saying. And I'm coming back and I'm going to demand an accounting not only from myself, but but from you, Mr. Innkeeper, Mrs. Innkeeper. I want to know that you took good care of him and I'm going to pay for anything that's still outstanding on his debt. These coins are only a deposit, a down payment on what I owe this man. And so the cross is only, in a sense, a down payment on all that he promises to give his people and the fullness of his grace. So as we conclude, we ask ourselves, what can I do? And for me, there are a lot of reasons not to help the poor. I'm giving you some of them, but I think there are more reasons to do it. Someone says, and our hearts always ask, give me a good reason to help the poor. Let me give you several of them. Some will say, well, they're needy, but they aren't starving or dying, so why should I get involved? I mean, it's not a dramatic case. They're not in the ditch on the side of the road. But if we love our neighbors as ourselves, we do not wait until they're starving. We have an obligation, too, to love them as we have been loved. So we become sympathetic helpers. We don't wait until it's an extremity to administer kindness. We don't wait till we get to the hospital before we give medicine along the way. I have my own problems, I say, with little time or money to spare. What can I do for this fellow or this woman? But real love involves risk and sacrifice. We should be willing to suffer with them and take part of their burden on ourselves if that's what it takes to see them through. Maybe we can't be Rockefeller and pay for everything, but we can do something. Yes, but you don't understand. If you've ever worked with poor people, if you've ever worked with the lost, if you've ever worked with addicts, They are hard to deal with. 
and they're ungrateful. Everyone wants to help the kind-hearted, the upright people whose poverty came on them without their fault and who will thank us when we help them. Very few of these cases exist. If you find somebody who's truly worthy and truly thankful, you found one in a hundred thousand. If you wait for a case like that, you'll wait a long time. Yes, but they brought this on themselves, didn't they? But some people apparently do not have a natural ability to manage their own affairs well. Like being born with impaired sight, they need relief and help to see a better way. What did this man, the Samaritan, the, the, Samaritan, the man, the Samaritan, top, what did he do? Well, maybe he should have had a bodyguard with him? I mean, uh, did he bring this on himself? Evidently not. He was just waylaid by the robbers. And many people who suffer various kinds of poverty didn't bring it on themselves. They were born into families where poverty was a way of life. They found themselves in circumstances where they couldn't get a way out. It just, the world just fell on them. One thing after another after another occurred to them, like Job. Or they were just born with less ability to cope with these things. You can't blame a blind man for not seeing. And you can't blame a poor man for not being rich. These are gifts which God gives to us. And sure, there's something called industry and thrift, but for the most part, those who are hurting, if we look closely, are not the only ones to blame. And then finally, yes, but they're idle and they're wasteful, and they persist in this idleness and wastefulness. Oh yes, but Christ found us in the same condition. Our spiritual bankruptcy was due to our own sin, yet he came without our help or care and gave us what we needed. And what about their families? Sometimes we have to help even when parents act irresponsibly for the children's sake. So I've tried to give me and you some reasons to do what's right, to follow in the pathway of Christ, to be the good Samaritan. There are reasons to do so, to look beyond the immediate objections that I've listed and others that you may think of. Look beyond that to the bias and the prejudice which Christ has for us. Which of us invited him to help us, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins? Which of us thanked him for what he did. Instead, we treated him as if he was our enemy. And we said, give us Barabbas. Crucify him. Crucify him. Which of us stopped to see the lame and the sick and the blind like he did and like we were? So we need to readjust our thinking. We need to see the great Samaritan as the paradigm for our lives in obeying him and trusting him. But it cannot happen apart from his grace and mercy and power. So let's ask him for that help now as we conclude. May we bow together. Lord, we don't like the poor. Their problems are too much for us. 
Their lives are too complicated and distressing. Their need is too great. And our time and our agenda is too important to us. Help us to readjust our thinking. To have time should it happen if we go down on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho for the one who is in the ditch. Enable us to give up our agendas and our time and our money and our energies for those who need it. And open our eyes, we pray, to those whom we may help. Let us not be like the priest and the Levite who not only so concerned about the own agenda, but weren't really even looking to help. Change our, reorient our thinking. Focus us upon those who have needs and enable us by your spirit to answer, to give, and to share. Yes, they don't deserve it, but neither did we. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming in spite of our being your enemy, in spite of our rejection of you, in spite of our not inviting you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for loving us when we were poor. Through Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen.